You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Thank you, Kate, for joining me for this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. As a brief introduction, I'm joined today by Kate Simpson, who is the National Director of Knowledge Management at Bennett Jones, a leading firm in Canada. I won't spoil all of your thunder, but if you could, if you can get started by actually just telling me how you found yourself to be in the legal profession and what you do right now. Hello, nice to be invited. Thank you so much. Yes, that's a great opening question, which could spend the next half an hour talking about, frankly, my life story. (laughs) So the English accent gives some of it away. So I started way back in London doing a law degree, mainly because I didn't want to be prime minister because I realised that nobody liked Margaret Thatcher. So I wanted to, then I was like, okay, so if I'm not going to do politics because no one likes you, then I should do law which is fascinating because <laughs> I think most people think the same. Exactly. <laughs> so I did a law degree and I kind of knew I didn't want to be a barrister. The fear of standing out up in front of a judge filled me with fear. So I decided to take the transactional route, the solicitor mm-hmm. route. So I did my legal practice course at the College of Law. Loved it. But I think if I had my time again, I would have probably gone the barrister route. But having gone the solicitor route, I kind of didn't want to be a lawyer. Like, I really didn't want to be a lawyer. So I joined a startup called Lawtel, at L-A-W-T-E-L, which was publishing case reports from courts the previous day. So the Court of Appeal would put a judgment down. We would have someone there. They would motorcycle it across England to give it to, this was pre-fax, pre-email, would give it to a barrister to summarise overnight. And us editors would stay up all night and wait for those summaries to come in and we would edit them for um, house style, etc. and substantive. Fascinating start to a career all based on on very primitive web, basically, and and a startup, a barrister from the Isle of Man who was just like way ahead of his time. So I was doing law, but not being a lawyer, and I loved it. Like I loved the the internet. I loved figuring out the search engine for Lawtel, the daily update that that we gave to lawyers way back way before it was a thing. Now everyone's doing it, and so I knew that that's the kind of world I wanted to be in rather than being a practicing lawyer. So since then, it's really been around that kind of, you know, the Venn diagram. I like to have the Venn diagram of law and technology and and kind of people or content. And so I was looking for more jobs like that. And I went through matrix chambers. So I managed to work for a barrister set and then fresh fields before I then became a consultant delivering basically doing information architecture and user experience. So I have a kind of design thinking background that I approach to all of my projects, which I think gives me some of that entrepreneurship, both language and process that I apply to to the projects that that we run now here at Bennett Jones. So I did, I think I did eight years in, no, I did five years in London and then we married a Canadian. So we emigrated eight years ago and I was still a consultant for a few years. So I've I've been I've seen the inside of ten different firms now. And <laughs> it is it is fascinating to see the, the sheer differences and the sheer similarities. But there are differences, mostly on, on culture and and the stories that they tell. But the that definitely gives you a big broad understanding of of you know 
what law firms are and what they are trying to do and, and the focus on centralizing knowledge and innovating, enabling efficiencies, those sort of quiet but very powerful things that need to happen on the business of law side are the things that, that I absolutely love about my job. So, as I said, absolutely uh, short question, but long answer. <laughs> That's perfect. I'll just ask <laughs> the short questions. But, yeah, there's a lot of information there. Yeah, so let's go through some of that in a bit more detail. So, and some of that I didn't actually know as, as thoroughly as I tried to research you. Well, actually, what I, what I really liked when you were talking was this Venn diagram, and I will draw it for the show notes after this, you know, of the law technology people. And it sounds like at least when you were first looking to find the overlap in, in there, I can't imagine there, there were too many positions back in the day, if I can say that. So how, how did you approach that? How, how did you... What made you think about it in that way, in thinking through those through and uh, those three areas actually? Because I imagine not everyone's thinking that, especially when you either want to be a barrister, which actually for all of our US uh, audience members, you can look up what a barrister is. But um, you know, what, what was the process like for you? What, what led you to thinking that way? You know, I think it's a being a consultant. Like you have to, you have to explain your unique selling position. You have to figure out what it is that differentiates you, and what you've learned or what you know. And I think you know one of the good ways of doing that is thinking, okay, so what do I actually really enjoy, or what do I and or what do I know? I'm trying desperately trying to remember that Japanese one, and they have way more Venn Venn diagram trying to pinpoint what it is that people will buy that you're good at and that you want to work with and that you can do. I I think it's a complex, anyway, there's a word for it. But what's interesting about it is that that understanding I put towards the Venn diagram, which is that somewhere in the middle of law and tech and user experience and design and, you know, these pieces, there wasn't a word for it. And even when I, when I first used the, the title information architect, information architecture had only been going like a couple of years and we were still trying to figure out we were trying to mm-hmm. define the damn thing and to, to be able to then sell it because if you can't define it if you can't you can't expect people to put money behind it yeah. so so i think what i tried to do was was work out what that where that intersection lies and how i can explain that as something that other people would want to buy from my consultancy. So I think that's that was the reason behind it. And I think it then led to being able to write for your website exactly what it is that you the services that you can then you can then do because you look at those three or four different fields of expertise. So oh, yeah that's and what was the information architecture route because of your your work that you did with Lawtel or was that some other reason that you sort of got into that? Yeah, it was definitely Lawtel. Well, I think it was just being in the web at the time mm. that the web kicked off <laughs> because you got to see the behind the curtain of the web right. because, you know, we built our own computers. We, there weren't databases, like these things, like we, we were part of the conversation as they were built. So, so when websites were first, you had to make huge decisions about where the navigation went and how, people interacted with information, how they how they moved through a site, how they moved through a story. And I think because we had to actually explain that. We couldn't, like now you go to WordPress and boom, you've got a website. Back then you actually had to, and you know, information architecture is still a, a valid and, and UX, like crikey, the, these professions are, should be 
bigger professions than they are currently. They, mm. the, the, we, we still don't fundamentally understand how people interact with information, especially at the deeper content levels. Yeah. Like, so watching a lawyer use technology and understanding you know, their mental models behind how a, a database is put together or, or how a set of content is displayed to them is, is, is still like hugely unknown, really. We're just yeah. making, you know, we're, we're making it up in our design decisions that we make. Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's definitely a resurgence. I, mean, I can't speak to information architecture. I probably didn't know what it was before today, frankly, but certainly things like design thinking and actually getting an understanding of how people are doing their work sitting down, watching them doing, having those conversations. And yeah. I, I wonder if it's just one of those sort of cyclical things that move through markets at a time. And actually, you probably could answer that a bit better because mm-hmm. as you move from the UK to Canada, what was there a big difference? Because you were a consultant in the UK and were you the same type of consultant doing the same thing in, in Canada? Did you find uh, yourself to be ahead of the curve there? Yeah, interesting. Yes and no. I mean, so in the thing about London and the firms that I was working with in London, they all knew who I was and what I, like, I'm not a quiet person. And so because they knew who I was and what I did and what I could do, it was really easy to find work because, you know, the next person would be like, oh, can you just help me out for like three months? I just, three months on a taxonomy project. We just need a whole bunch of legal classifications. We just need to go through the process. Or... I need navigation. We're going to, we're going to redesign our, our precedent collection or our intranet. And so I need a new navigation structure. So it was really easy in London. But then when I came to Toronto, nobody knew me. Nobody knew what I did and my experience. So I had to come up with different ways of telling that story of, of what it is that I could do. And I think by figuring out what that ribbon of story is that connects... <laughs> A law degree back in back in London, all the way to you know a law firm in England on the business of law side in, yeah. in Toronto. I think because you have to kind of try and retell that story. I think there is a there's, there's an informing part of it, but then there's an understanding of where the, the firms are in in Toronto. I mean, the 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 fact that litigators and, and solicitors sit in the same firm, for example, is a very oh. means for a very different yeah. firm. But on the business side as well as the, the substantive side versus the UK, yeah. where it's just transactional in, in the firms and you have to go somewhere else for the litigators. Yeah. So, and I think I think you're being very modest as well because actually it's not just that. I think that has to be a huge part of it. But then it's the way that business is done. And the UK and Canada are not on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're different enough that not only do you have to think about what's my story, what's my pitch, what are the needs of the market, what are the needs of the businesses, right? Because the business structures, as you said, are different, but how do I actually speak their language to their needs, whether it's something that you're educating the market on and right, also yeah. as a complete unknown entity or somewhat unknown entity, relatively speaking. Yeah, yeah. So. It is, it's funny looking back eight years now and thinking, so I, I got kindly introduced to a kind of KM meeting of the major firms in downtown Toronto, uh, and they were meeting, and it was more PSLs, and there was like a couple of KM, but it, it had just started, whereas i just come from London where at Freshfields, they'd been doing KM for like 10, 15 years. So this was and much longer but you know the team I was on had Mm -hmm. been going for 15 20 and you just like so they were just starting so it it did seem that I was able to bring some of that over to Toronto but there was a there was already a movement in that area and it really didn't at the time have a lot to do with tech it was more how do we 
How do we centralize best practices? How do we actually build the precedents that we need? This was pre-practical law company. And so, you know, do you need KM lawyers? And, you know, the UK says yes, but the US (laughs) says no. So I think Canada has found somewhere in the middle of that. You know, my team is slightly is structured more like the UK than it is the US because of my background. Sure. But that is a I think the the, the way that KM has come about in Canada has is very uniquely Canadian with a <laughs> tiny bit of Simpson-esque bringing across some of the best practices from from the UK. Yeah. I mean that's a good segue into talking about what you do right now. So how did you right. find yourself at the firm you're at now? Was that the first firm that you joined and actually what was the move like from being a consultant to Yeah. <laughs> yeah, talk a bit more about that. Yeah. So I've been I've been inside what six six firms here in Toronto doing different different types of work but as a consultant and when Ben Jones offered me a permanent position I was kind of like why don't we want to I don't a minute position I kind of like you know being a consultant however you know I phoned a phoned a friend who has done both sides of consulting and, and perme and she said you know we shouldn't pass up an opportunity to be able to set strategy and execute and go into governance. You know, as a consultant, you'll never get that stretch. As a vendor, you'll never get that stretch where you can you can come up with a strategy, you can execute on it, and then move into a maintenance mode and see if any of any of your ideas actually yeah. work. And that kind of cinched it for me. So I wanted to develop you know, Bennett Jones had a small KM department, mm-hmm. but they wanted to invest more fully into it. You know, so so I've been working at trying to figure out what KM means for a firm like Bennett Jones. So that requires quite a lot of listening to the firm and the, and the way that the lawyers interact now and trying to figure out the best way that we can create a, a great KM supporting function at the firm that, that will continue regardless of who's in, in charge here. You know, I want to create something that's lasting. So I think that there's a, it is in, incredibly different to be a consultant. Like you, you never got dragged into any of the political <laughs> applications or even trying to get budget or, yeah. or, you know, trying to get extra resources and the, and sure. the things that we have to do to, to beg, borrow and steal. And so that has been an, a bit of an eye opener and, and, and I value that, that learning. But I think it is a, I am still very much, which is why the, the, the subject interests me, because I think I am still very much an entrepreneur within the firm, but not disrupting too much. You can't make too many waves, otherwise you're seen as, as too disrupting, which means you... you position, right? Yeah, and, and you know, you, they, people put their defenses up before you mm. even start it. So, but, but it, I, I still consider it more of a, like I'd approach a consulting gig in that, you know, it is, it is about achieving success. And so I feel like I don't have enough time to do any of the things as well as I would like to. And so that balance of leaning on others. Uh, so now I have this awesome team, really phenomenal team. If anyone steals any of them, I will kill them. <laughs> but I have a phenomenal team who are eager and willing and want to pick up and try things. And so that, I guess that move from maker to manager is mm. is the next step of my career because I you know I'm very much a I was a very much hands-on consultant so people got me as a, an extra pair of hands to do a whole bunch of things as well as you know run design thinking workshops or or, or brainstorming card sorting that sort of thing mm-hmm. like th- there was a, an element of we just need an extra pair of hands to just get this bit done and so 
it's very different when you're managing a team where you can't actually be focused on doing. Mm-hmm. You really have to be focused on trying to manage the best out of the team to actually create the outputs. And, and, and what, what was that like for you? What was the, and I promise at some point we'll t- talk about the topic we talked about at the start yeah, of this. But I suppose, you know, when you went from a producer, a maker to a manager, was that a, an intentional thing? Is that what you were hired for? Or was that sort of an accidental role? They were like, okay, we need, we need more people and you've been here the longest. And um, for summarizing this, of no, course, it's definitely, and prepared and everything. it's kind of, I was definitely not like, I, I think I was definitely hired for the things I was doing for other firms. Right. But over the four years, almost five years that I've been at Bennett Jones, they've given me a team of people that where I've, I've been able to actually delegate the work out so that I can focus on, on the more strategic parts to the job. So I haven't talked about, so I define KM with four buckets. So these are my four buckets of projects that I have. Sure. So I do, I'm responsible for research and development. So that's mm-hmm. my innovation bucket where I'm looking at new, new tech and I have a product manager who helps me kind of roll out and, and, and track mm-hmm. all of the, our purchases. Uh, precedents and playbooks. So we're focused on the, the content side training so the the we are responsible for making sure that that we roll these things out but also that everyone's trained and understands how to work on those things and then the third one is kind of practice innovation it's kind of project management and a little bit of pricing but it's really more the 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 process and so all of my so what i what i did early doors was i now put all of my projects into those four buckets and make sure that there's a good spread mm. of focus amongst those four, those four things so i think that that means that that that's my role now is to kind of manage that strategic view and make right. sure that we're concentrating on the right things rather than me being the one to, Do to design the yeah. yeah design design the information architecture <laughs> of our new precedent system right. or i mean i you know i have a ton of you know findability and retrieval skills. So right. I understand search, but I am now trying to train my team to be experts in search, right. so, that, so that like I don't have to sit there for three hours, you know, testing our search <laughs> engine. Sure. So, but that's a slow journey. So I've only actually really just started that. I've, you know, my my final team member started just three weeks ago. So now I've got now I've got the team that that I can start, mm. you know, properly delegating and training up to be the producer of all the things that I used to be a producer of. Right. So that, uh, that's a work in progress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How big is your team now? So including me, it's 10. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's I know. A it's shocking. Yeah. It is. Like I'm a proper grown up now. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you think about, actually, before I go to that, was it difficult for you to transition into that, into doing all those things, to giving them up at, and be yeah. the manager? It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard because the, the you know you spend your career being an expert in something, yeah. and then, and you're like, well, no, no, but I still have to do it, right? Because if I'm not an expert in that, then what's my you know what's yeah. why am I here? Why, why are you buying? Why are you paying for me? Yeah. So that there's a whole bunch of me that just wants to cling <laughs> because I'm comfortable in that area, right? Sure. Like that's where it's I find that stuff not easy, but it, you know there's a level of challenge, but but that. That's where you know I, I get my intellectual curiosity, and mm-hmm. so that is harder. But I do think as you take on leadership roles, you have to figure out how to move your own career to the next stage, right. and how you take your team with you, so that it's not all about you. It's about the team and, and, yeah. what, and, and what you collectively 
produce or deliver for the, for the firm and not yeah. not about one person but and yeah it's still about me so yes <laughs> yeah. I, there is so much conflict with, with that and and you oh, know sure. and we're yeah. just starting that kind of journey so yeah. if you have any tips maybe to read <laughs> that would be great i will certainly try and find you some tips actually and <laughs> i'm speaking a lot about that because i'm in a very similar role where i've had mm. to move from being a producer to a manager right it is a difficult difficult thing to do because especially and for me at least it's difficult when you get anyone new and if they're brand new to that function because you will for sure and if you're certainly it's probably arrogance i can call it arrogance like me you would feel like you can do a better job than the rest yeah of them, right because for sure. i could do it in this amount of time exactly yeah. and it's very difficult to spend maybe 10x amount of time to teach someone and yeah. go back to the age-old sort of, you know, idiom, you teach a man to fish kind of thing. But it's much easier to say when you're not emotionally involved in this. It is a difficult thing, but it does, it also makes you feel really proud when you can start seeing the changes, right? That's one of, as a manager now, and as a leader now, that's one of the biggest thing as yeah. you see whether they're incremental improvements yeah. or when you sort of wake up and you look back and you're like, wow, that person really grew. And yeah. I have grown as a manager, as a leader as well. Yeah. It's an important thing to do. And that's part of the reason I get, I'm doing this actually, because I get to be a producer. Um, yeah, but yeah. The, the part funny. it has the weirdest and the best feedback loop. I was thinking about this earlier because I can listen back to this. Right. I can't influence it, but I can listen back to this. Like, Oh, I really should have asked Kate about this question when she mentioned this. Right. right. So it, you get to sort of almost self-manage yourself in some way. Yeah. That's very cool. <laughs> I like that. Um, that's very cool. Well, anyway, that's enough about why podcasting is cool and everyone should do it. But how, when, you, when you're thinking about your four buckets, how, how do you think through those? So, and actually, the other thing was you mentioned the four buckets are in, uh, innovation, precedence and playbook, training and practice innovation. So what's the difference between innovation and practice innovation? So that's more, so innovation is more about tech. So I call that R&D, research and development internally. And then practice innovation is more about the process efficiencies and process innovations that we can find by doing things in different ways and adopting, you know, quite more agile methods. I wouldn't say it's, uh, you know, nowhere near PMP or anything, but Mm. I do think project management can instruct a bunch of very useful things. I don't think uh, wholesale adoption kind of works for services, but there is an agile thing, you know, software developers are not like lawyers and, you know, lawyers are not creating software output. So, so it is a different, but but you can nick pieces pieces of it. So I think scoping is one of the most important things ever and we don't do it well and we don't track (laughs) scope. And so when our clients are shocked because it's more than the estimate, it's like, can I remind you about all of the things that went wrong during the deal? Yeah. And when I, you know, well, when they, I emailed they, you to tell you that this was going to be. Yeah. Well, there's so, a concept of scope creep in product uh, in product and software development. And I think yeah. that concept very, very easily translates into legal practice for sure. So, yeah. So I think it's a, um, it's figuring out whether you've got, you know, what you don't want to do is do a very, very formal project management. You say, you know, you have to have all of your assumptions listed. You have to then spend scope and then you have to, you know, do a change request. And so, but I, I do think there are a bunch of learnings. So yeah, we, it's more about the project management side for mm. that practice piece. Right. Right. That and makes processes sense. generally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's so important to actually have that you write a lot. I've been following mm-hmm. a lot of your writings and you've been writing on all sorts of topics. And actually one in particular that caught my attention was around 
the idea of being an entrepreneur, basically mm. disrupting from within. And you know, what I really liked about, I think you've written actually quite a bit about that, whether under that title or something else, is the idea of driving disruption internally. It doesn't have to be full on disruption. It's just Mm-hmm. driving people internally, actually, I would class it as. So yeah, can you talk a bit more or give us a bit more of an idea about why you, you know, what, what your thoughts are on that and how you actually came up to that concept? Because it's not a very popular concept or widespread concept, I should say, actually, within within legal profession. How did you come to that? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think there's a lot of similarities. You no, know, how do I need to start this? I think... I, you know, so I've run my own company, but I would not have called myself an entrepreneur, Mm. you know, getting new business, having those conversations, being active on LinkedIn, blogging, that sort of thing, trying to create some kind of thought leadership Mm. in an area so that you can sell your services or sell your brain and the things that you can do onto others. I would not have called that particularly entrepreneurial. You know, I was very much like a lot of people when they hear entrepreneurs, like, oh, this wish person, they just, oh my God. But as I got older, but what you realize is that actually managed risk is not the same as gambling risk. And I think when people hear the word entrepreneur, they often think of gambling risk. They think risk and then gambling risk, which is uncontrollable risk. I mean, you know, unless you're, you know, a very good poker player or something but but for the rest of us it's it's you know an unknown risk whereas i think there's a there's a bunch of controlled it's a calculated risk, risk right? yeah that you can yeah exactly that, that you can that you can take that can just be a gut feel decision that you make and sometimes those gut feels are as good as any well-researched opinion on something but it's a it is as you say a calculated risk that that you that you take so i think the the I'm a bit of a groupie when it comes to the new startups that, that especially in Toronto, we've got so many hmm. and they're so awesome. In fact, to, it's tonight it's the uh, Legal Innovation Zones Christmas party. So after this, I'm going to go and hang out with my, you know, band members. But they, you know, what what I love about them is that they they had a path, just like I had a path, and then at some point they're like, no there's this other thing. What's driving me? I want to do this other thing. And so they pivot out of their stable-ish career to chase this, this thing that, that has no, has no known output. Like it could completely fail. And yet there's something inside that drives you to, to kind of do that. And that might be a rejection of that other career, or it might be the, the carrot that's at the end of the, you know, the, the promised land. So I think having hung out with a whole bunch of, of, like proper entrepreneurs rather than just me. <laughs> I think you get a you get a sense that that it's not that you know it's fun. The lawyer path is great for, for some people. Like the 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 fact that your career stretches out ahead of you and you know kind of where you're going can be a, a huge a huge driver for many people. But for some of us, like that that is actually a turnoff. Like I just I like the you know, weaving yeah the weaving path. Sure. So so I can kind of understand why suddenly, you know, you can put the word entrepreneurship on top. In fact, Bennett Jones had a culture of disciplined entrepreneurship where (laughs) I know quite right. Well, because it's a Calgary based firm. So, you know, this firm started in Calgary, which is very cowboy. It (laughs) it really is like by the seat of your pants kind of deals and and industry fascinating Mm. place. You know, then Hugh McKinnon came out to Toronto and, and built 
a Toronto office, which was unheard of, right? That, 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 that you, didn't, you didn't do that. But this was back in 90s or late 80s or something. And even then, they were like, oh, you can't do it. Like, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> Toronto's right. all sewn up kind of thing. And he was like, no, I'm going to give it a go. And look at it today. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and I think it just takes that kind of, that bigger vision and a will to, to kind of push against the odds that everyone else is telling you. It does, it does take a certain type of person and, and that's what, you know, some of the writing I've done on the topic is actually just trying to explore what that is. What are those drivers? Because I am fascinated by it. Because like, I kind of sense it when I compare myself to some of the lawyers at my firm and, and other professionals here. Mm. There is, I do have something weird, but I don't know whether that's <laughs> entrepreneurial or not. Do you know I mean? And I, you know, I, go, I talk about the curiosity. Curiosity is mm. my... Um, like if you're not interested in any in anything else than what you're given, I mean that can make you a little bit unfocused because you can yeah. you can get waylaid by all these things. <laughs> oh, I've got to, I've got to follow that that path, that rabbit warren, yeah. to find out what the answer to that. And I think there's two parts to it. And actually, the other part you mentioned earlier when you were talking about being a manager, being a leader, which is well, the first is right. You have to be curious. But there is, and it doesn't have to be the grand Silicon Valley-esque curiosity in trying to solve the next big world problem. It could be something simple that only affects you, your team, or something similar, right? Something like that at a smaller scale. And that's okay, especially in in a business environment. That might be the safer thing to do, potentially. And the second part you mentioned earlier is, I I think, the most important, which is listening, right? So you have to just sit there and be able to listen to people and I don't know what your take is generally, and I'm, I'm one of those people, I think it's a natural human instinct. When you start listening to things, there's that bias that's always in the back of your mind when you start hearing things that are in disagreement to your assumptions, not your beliefs or values or anything crazy, just what you assumed it to be. Yeah. And it is very difficult to train yourself, I think, to just still sit on your hands for a bit and just mm-hmm. continue to listen. Yeah, I, it, is, it is funny, isn't it? I, I've done that strength finder. Mm-hmm. thing a couple of yeah. times in my career and I come out as a you know a bit of a learner and I think that's the if you understand that there is more than you can ever learn mm-hmm. in life then it enables you to listen well because and I'm also an insight collector I love you know when someone says and it sounds like an insight about how lawyers think about things like if I if I if I can pick up one of those in a conversation mm-hmm my job here is done, like it's yeah. brilliant. And so collecting those and then figuring out what I'm going to do with those, yeah. but how, you know, if we're trying to do an adoption campaign, you know, mm. what, what works, what doesn't, like I love figuring some of that, that out. Yeah. And that gives you that kind of openness because you can set out on one path and learn something halfway through that makes you pivot. Right. And I love that idea that, you know, this could go in any direction if you're open and, and willing to, to, to pivot when you have different information. Like one of the great quotes I, I had from one of the actual entrepreneurs that actually built something <laughs> here in Toronto is that, you know, that, that it doesn't, the aha moment isn't, isn't the time. It's can you pivot when you don't have all of the information? And yeah. for lawyers, I think that's the, that might be the hardest thing or the biggest difference that they would need to, that they would need to overcome because yeah. lawyers need to understand or have all the information to then make a decision or or create options for clients to make a decision. Whereas entrepreneurs really have to be really happy with just making a decision without, and knowing that they don't have all the information. And, and that is definitely more like me. Like I, 
you know, I don't need to have all the information at my fingertips yeah. to kind of make a decision. But I, I also recognize that when I make those decisions, therefore, I am not, I don't have all the information. So yeah. it means I don't, I, I won't be wedded to that decision mm. with all my heart and soul because yeah. I didn't have all of the information. But, sure. but you know, it and just I think that's you that the kind of flexibility as well, doesn't it? And I think. You wrote about this before, but and I think it was, there was a summary either on the firm's website or maybe in, in, in the article itself, the, the three ideas behind being a, a legal entrepreneur. And I think this is right. from your groupie days. I think you spoke to a bunch of startups and, and tech companies in, in Canada. And I yeah. think the three points were have an idea with wings. That's the, you know, the true start of the journey. Be patient and persevere. And yeah. that's the aha moment point, I think. And just being able to pivot from there and you know persevere through the many, many pivots that you might have to go through. It's exactly. And then the laughter. The tears, the yeah. laughters. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Because I think it's, it's very easy to get lost in all the success story, but you know, sometimes things don't work and it's okay. Yeah. You have to yeah. be able to adapt and sort of continue going. Mm-hmm. And, the la- and everything the la- takes three times as long, right? The, <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, IT, sure. it just takes, you know... <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, with every project I go into, I'm like, oh, it's be three months. Mm. And then instantly in my head, there's a little, there's a, there's a little, that, that'll be six months, yeah. not three months. Yeah. Three months is like, you can't do anything in three months. Stop it. Yeah. And, and yes. actually the last one, which uh, yeah, and I want to sort of dig into this one, especially how people can put this into practice internally in law firms was around ambiguity, embracing ambiguity. How do you, you know, at your firm and your experience, how do you think as you're trying to drive or change people's mindset internally, right? As, as, as much as you're trying to basically infect the corporate culture with some sort of a new, more experimental mindset, how do you do yeah. that? And I mean, do you have any examples where you may have done that? And you don't have to go to specifics if you can't, but where you might have had success in doing something similar? No, not really. I mean, <laughs> I, it is, it's just, it's bloody hard. It's, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Like, you know, there are books and books and books about change management mm. and, and they're all brilliant and you can pick up bits and pieces from them, but without a burning platform, yeah. without something forcing the change. And even then that that's still not, but yeah. you know, you can just suggest yeah. and you can work with willing. We have enough willing at the firm for my team to be fully engaged, hmm. full-time, permanent project, things to do. So, and, and I do think that we shouldn't expect every lawyer or every user to be, to use our tools. We don't expect everyone to be an Apple user. Like, yeah. we're, you know, people like to have their own, it's their own practice. They've right. been just fine. Thank you very much for 25, 30 years. Why suddenly? So I, I do think I, I like to try and be a bit realistic with hmm. what is possible when dealing with humans which is a bit like you know acting with animals like <laughs> you just sometimes yeah. you know if you're herding cats it's it's not not going to be easy so yeah. so don't don't pretend that you're going to be able to achieve that otherwise you, you know you'll go home at the end of the night like disappointed because you didn't manage to convince yeah. x number of people to use this this tool they may have very valid reasons for that and so that comes back to that thing you were saying about listening and and understanding that there are some really good reasons why some people won't and don't use technology some of the technology and okay good fabulous thank you very much Uh, moving on to the next person who might so the embracing ambiguity piece to entrepreneurship is more about i I quite like the way you said it the 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 infecting a, a culture to change and i think i get many laughs but but i think some of this is generational i mean i mean not not 
as in old people don't like it, young people do. I just mean it takes a generation to change. Right. It takes a generation to adopt brand new behaviors, brand new workflows. And this, some people will be hangers on and they won't adopt or, or whatever, but building it into the workflow, I don't think we've even got the technology to, to properly do this. And, and some of me, tiny bit of me, actually thinks some of this pushback from lawyers about, about the adoption, I think is genuine. I think, you know, I think technologists and vendors have to work well with some of us mm-hmm. internally to figure out, well, how do we create a better workflow system that doesn't force lawyers mm-hmm. to think at every other day of a, oh, now I have to open X to do to do A, right. and then I have to open Y to do B. Like, why are we forcing lawyers to have to use multiple different systems and all of them have different interfaces yeah. and, and, and obstacles like trying to import documents from sure. document management. Like it is maybe the technology hasn't reached the stage where we can build a platform and a workflow system that allows lawyers to, to stay in a space that triggers mm. reminders about using some of these systems and, and, Oh, you are at, X part of the deal. Right. You should now be using Kira, or you yeah. should now be using closing form. Like we right. haven't, we haven't built that. So, uh, so some of my, you know, I like to be a disruptor, but but I am also a listener. Yeah, and I think you know it is a delicate balance that you have to measure. Actually, before I go into that, one point I'll say: anyone listening who wants to learn a lot more about this, the best book I've read on the topic is called The Innovator's Dilemma. I think it's old book, but it's Clayton. Yeah, Clayton Christensen. Yeah. yeah, really good book to read. But I think it's a delicate balance. Because you have to, I think you have to, in a law firm, be on the constant lookout of not just what the next technology is, but what's going to make the biggest impact to your business, right? Ultimately, that's what it comes down to, not the next shiny thing. That's a part of it because it appeases people and it's easier to get buy-in on that sometimes. What's going to make the biggest impact? I know there's going to be resistance, even though people are telling me they really want this thing, there's going to be resistance to change and the fact that you can't ever please everyone. That's just not going yeah. to happen. Right. So balancing all of those things, is it is difficult. And I think in a firm and actually like any business, is also the political aspects of everything. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, what you, what you said in working together with technologists, with lawyers, you know, with Cam and everyone else internally and externally, I think just means that you can get to that place where everyone's kind of happy and no one hates each other right (laughs) there might be people on each end where they're like okay look i i didn't get exactly what i wanted and some people might be like i got exactly what i wanted but everyone is sort of leaving amicable or neutral right that that's kind of the best best positioning and especially in a biggish firm i would say yeah yeah yeah. so you know if someone is thinking about this and you know certainly by u.s standards i think your km team is pretty big maybe not by uk standards what do you think are some of the things that the listeners can do, whether they're in a CAM position, a, a whether they're a technologist internally, externally, they're a lawyer, how can they train themselves? What, what kinds of things should they be thinking about in not just implementing technology, but actually being mindful of the mindset, the firm, the culture of the firm has? Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting because I don't know whether there's a, you know, this is trying to figure out my background and that is is the fact that the way that I approach these issues, is it because, you know, I did that, I was 
part of a bunch of startups mm. early and that I was a consultant. Does that mean that I've, I've adopted some of that design thinking approach to my world and what other people need to do is learn some of that and then they'll be able to do the same? I'm not clear on. So my advice is, is kind of that maintaining that curiosity there's a, there's a few words, I think. There's being curious, mm. asking questions, asking the dumb questions, because nobody <laughs> asks the dumb questions, but that there is uh, getting people to explain why things happen is really interesting when they start trying to explain it. The other thing is, you know, Farnham Street blog. I don't know if you follow mm. Farnham Street. Fascinating yeah. dude. But he talks a lot about what we don't know, mm. about walking into a library and realizing you don't know any of that, <laughs> because that gives you that open mind mm. that we are all imperfect basing decisions on imperfect information. And if you can recognize that and just live with that, just make it, you know, all of the, get your fingers all wrinkly around that. Like we're all just making it up. We've never, we've never done this before. Yeah. Uh, we can look back to history, but we've not done this before. Mm. So understanding the, the, the pressures you're on and, and what decisions you can and, and will make based on the information you have, I think will help. Well, it help, helps calm me because I'm like, well, I can only do the best I can do, right? Yeah. But it means that you, you are open to listening to other ways of thinking about things. And, you know, I meet people all the time. Funny enough, Ben and I did a Mary Abraham, Mary V. Abraham uh, of KM fame. Mm-hmm. We did a quiz, a legal entrepreneurship quiz okay. uh, last year amongst the KM group of New York and London and Toronto. And we were, we were quite surprised about the sheer number of entrepreneurial mindsets hmm. that were among them. And I think sometimes it, you know, that some of these positions that we have, whether in tech or uh, in KM or innovation or even business development and, hmm. and professional development, I think, you know, you have taken another path. You were a lawyer or, or not quite a practicing lawyer or whatever, and you took another path. And I think that openness to thinking in different ways about one's own career and different ways of doing things that I think, I think we are all more entrepreneurial than we give ourselves credit for. We just mm. might not have labeled ourselves with that, which is kind of me and my background. I would never have called myself an entrepreneur right. compared to lawyers. I may be entrepreneurial <laughs> compared to actual people who are building actually <laughs> useful stuff for the legal profession. Right. I'm not an entrepreneur. So I think there is a, it is a, a definition thing, yeah, but I, I do, though, right? yeah. I, I think so. I think so. And, and, you know, we can all do innovative and we can try and fail at a bunch of things and we share the good things. We <laughs> don't talk about the things that fail, but that's fine. And so that the profession can build on itself, mm. uh, build on the best practices. And I think that's a, that's a great thing to do, but I feel like, you know, we could, we could label it, but I think our very jobs involve us disrupting from within because our firms are asking us to figure out well what works is is there anything behind this technology is it worth us looking at someone has to do that on behalf of every single firm so i think our firms are end up you know encouraging us to be a little bit disruptive and and figure those things out so that so that lawyers can continue to do what they are good at and that pays my salary they will continue (laughs) to do that while we do a little bit of exploration Mm -hmm. and figure out well what you know where is this going to pivot is this going to pivot or is this just a fad is this what are what are the trends and i think you know someone has to be responsible for doing that at firms and and so we end up being a little bit disruptive so so i think it's more common than than perhaps we we, we might think. 
Mm. And I think I know I've taken up a lot of your time. So I think in summing up three things you just mentioned that, that stood out to me, which perfectly sum up the, the entire episode. One is we are all imperfect basing our decisions on imperfect stuff. <laughs> we'll substitute yeah. stuff for something a bit more um, yeah. meaningful in some way. But in some way, we are all disruptors. Your firms are asking you to disrupt in whatever small way it might be or yeah. a large way it might be because ultimately that is the only way to go out there, test your assumptions, you know, hypothesize. And it's okay if you fail because ultimately that feeds into the point that allows you to build on the best practices. The only way you understand what best practices are is by testing out a whole bunch of things and you figure out which is the best. So I think that is a perfect time to close. Before we do that, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell people if they wanted to get in touch, how they could do that, or if they wanted to read a lot of your wonderful articles in more detail, where could they do that as well? So I write for Canadian Lawyer Magazine every other month for a column called Legal Innovation Now. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's where I test out my ideas for my firm. You can find a list of them on my LinkedIn profile under publications. I list them all. Some, some of them are only available in hard copy, but uh, the rest are all online. You can follow me on Twitter. I don't tweet so much, but I'm on Twitter a lot grabbing the insights. amazing <laughs> insights that everyone else has. Yeah, that I just collect like, oh, Twitter, yeah. Exactly. I collect everything. I have bookshelves and bookshelves and bookshelves <laughs> behind me on, on books. So I should actually, you know, come up with, you know, the set of books that have changed my life professionally. Not, you know, cause I, I do think there are some amazing books out there that, that, you know, you, you start reading those and they're not for the legal industry mm-hmm. and you try and apply them to what you're doing every yeah. day. And you're like, Oh my God, there's so much, there's so much that we could be doing. There's so much more to our jobs, so many more projects that we can initiate and, and mm-hmm. campaigns that we can try out on behalf of our law firms, yeah. just following some of the advice that, that, that these uh, pundits are good at. So. Mm. Well, thank you very much. It was, it's been a true pleasure. Yeah. I can talk to you all day going down yeah. the different rabbit holes, but I'll yeah. give you back your evening. Good thank time. you so much, Kate. Thank you, Ajat. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.